This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, CPA. I'm Art Wiederman. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm a proud member of the Academy of Dental CPAs, which is a wonderful organization of 24 CPA firms that represent over 9,000 dentists. I am one of the founding members. We founded the organization back in late 2001 with uh, eight of our other members. It was uh, around a table in Scottsdale, Arizona with two pitchers of water and a bunch of pads of paper and pen and Boy, it sure did become an amazing organization. And if you're not working with a dental-specific CPA, go on to our website, which is www.adcpa.org, and look for a member in your area. You will not be sorry if you give a call to one of the great member firms in our organization. If you're looking to get a hold of me, if you have a tax or financial question, maybe a question on metrics in your dental practice, maybe something doesn't seem right and you want to run some things by me, I've seen it all, um, you can give me a call at my office in Tustin, California, 714-259-0505. Look for all of our previously published uh, podcasts. And again, we are just busting at the seams with listeners and getting great comments about our work. I'm very proud of the work that we're doing on the art of dental finance and I will be having some very exciting news for you in the coming weeks about the podcast, which I will share with you when appropriate. It's all great. So today, I have a very special guest on the podcast. Uh, He is also a dental CPA. He's been one for 35 years, and he's a graduate of Long Beach State University, grew up in New York City. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's me. Oh, that's right. I'm the guest today, so... I started to introduce a guest like I normally do, and I started introducing me. That's kind of silly. But anyway, um, I'm going to spend the hour with you today, and I'm going to share with you one of the one of the talks I give to the dental groups that I speak to, and I speak to many dental groups every year, and it's called The 10 Biggest Financial Mistakes Dentists Make, but we're going to add something to that. So this actual podcast is going to be titled the 10 biggest financial mistakes dentists make and how to avoid them. Because obviously, if I tell you what the mistakes are and I don't tell you how to fix them, I'm really not helping you a whole lot, am I? But I will tell you, I've been a dental CPA, like I mentioned before, when I introduced myself for 35 years. Uh, We started back in 1984 with the Pacific Institute of Management with uh, Dr. Jim Pride, Dr. Phil Whitener, Harry Demery, Charlie Warren, and all the amazing, wonderful dental consultants that are, uh, some are still working, some are retired around the United States that helped lots and lots of dentists. And I've learned a lot in my 35 years. I've worked with literally thousands of dentists. It's all I do. It's all I've ever done. If you had told me coming out of Long Beach State University that I was going to be a CPA helping dentists, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful career The dental profession is a wonderful profession. Some of my very, very good friends are dentists, and I am honored and privileged to hopefully help many of you 
uh, meet your personal financial goals. So we're going to do the 10 biggest financial mistakes dentists make and how to avoid them. But first, I want to share something with you that I read on a website called ProPublica. ProPublica is a not-for-profit journalistic organization. Let me try that again. Not-for-profit journalistic organization. And they do investigative reporting. And they did a really interesting article about the audit rate, that meaning the IRS audit rate. I'm just going to read some of it to you. It kind of goes like this. The IRS audits the working poor at about the same rate as the wealthier 1%. Now, in response to questions from a U.S. senator, the Internal Revenue Service has acknowledged that that's true, but professes it can't change anything unless it's given more money. Now, ProPublica reported this disproportionate audit focus on lower-income families in April of 2019. Lawmakers confronted IRS Commissioner Charles Reddig about the emphasis uh, citing ProPublica stories, and Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat of Oregon, asked Reddick for a plan to fix the imbalance. So Reddick agreed. Last month, Reddick replied with a report, but it said that the IRS has no plan and won't have one until Congress agrees to restore the funding it slashed from the agency over the past nine years, something lawmakers have shown little inclination to do. So they say, on one hand, the IRS says auditing poor taxpayers is a lot easier. The agency uses relatively low-level employees to audit returns for low-income taxpayers who claim the earned income tax credit. The audits, of which there were about 380,000 last year, which represented 39% of the total IRS audits, they're done by mail, they don't take very long, and they are the most efficient use of the IRS's available resources. On the other hand, auditing the rich is hard. It's hard, guys. It's hard to do this. It takes senior auditors hours to open and complete the exam. What's more, the letter says, the rate of attrition is significantly higher among those more experienced auditors. As a result, the budget cuts have hit them hard, and so on and so forth. So let's talk about the IRS for a second before we get into our 10 biggest mistakes. So the IRS... It's an interesting organization. They have a job to do like anybody. And and we've had Joseph Broyles on our program. We'll have him on again. Uh, The first time I had Joseph on, we talked about uh, collections procedures in the IRS and what if you get behind on your taxes. And the next time we're going to talk about actually how an audit works. And he was an auditor for, I think, nine or 10 years. So he, he knows the system inside and out. But the interesting thing about the IRS is they have a job to do. And when I go in and I've been in dozens and dozens of IRS audits, my feeling is instead of trying to beat these people up and make them feel insignificant, I give them everything I possibly can within reason. And that makes their job easier and I gain their trust. Just like you doctors have a new patient come in and you need to gain their trust, I need to gain the trust of an IRS auditor. And it's a very political conversation that we have about the IRS audit system. Now, we we know that we have a budget deficit, an annual deficit, that is at or above $1 trillion. You know, Austin Powers talks about $1 billion. Well, that's a thousand billion is a trillion. Imagine that. The government's spending more than a thousand billion dollars a year more than it takes in. 
So one great way to solve that problem would be to just audit 50% of the taxpayers. Two things would happen. Number one, the IRS would gain revenues from that, significant revenues, because not everybody does their tax returns correctly and not everybody takes the proper, correct legal deductions. They take deductions that maybe are not so legal. Uh, and, and the other thing is it would put the fear uh, of you-know-what into taxpayers, and they would probably comply. We also have an underground economy that's well over $100 billion a year, if not more, of unreported income. However, the government will never do that. And the reason the government will never do that is because if it is publicized that the government is funding the IRS to try and bring in more revenues, that is a political hot uh, hot potato. And any senator, congressman, or president who is affiliated with any idea to fund the IRS more uh, is probably going to get voted out of office. Because remember that congressmen, senators, uh, you know, representative senators and presidents uh, generally like to get reelected as often as they can because that's what they do. Because if they don't get reelected, they're out of a job. So by making the IRS a big, big watchdog agency, uh, that's going to possibly cost jobs. It is politically unpopular to go after the public. So that's why they've never done it. They've been slashing the IRS's budget for years and years and years. Their computer system is circa 1950, 1960. Uh, I was in an IRS audit one time, probably four or five years ago. And I had the new, at that time, state-of-the-art laptop computer. And the IRS auditor told me that his computer was so slow that he suggested, because he was downloading some information from the IRS's computer to show me about the audit, he actually suggested that I go to lunch because it was going to take that long to download the information. That's how... Uh, how untechnologically uh, advanced the IRS is. It's not the IRS's fault. It's because that the government's not giving them any money. But I do want to say this. You might listen to what I just told you and say, well, you know, they're not auditing the, the wealthier people. Uh, we can just write off the family dog and the family cat. And I'm going to say, no, you can't. Because the IRS is the uh, uh, O and uh, powerful uh, Oz, I think that was what it was. Well, that movie was back in 1939. I wasn't born. Uh, But the very powerful Oz is the IRS. And if you get audited and you start doing some really, really silly things, then um, uh, they do have the power uh, to take your money, take your bank account, levy your bank account, put you in jail. It doesn't happen very often. And you got to be really, really bad to do that. But one of our... 10 mistakes that dentists make and how to fix them we're going to talk about today has to do with taxes. So that is my little comment uh, of the week about the IRS. It's a very interesting organization and um, they have a job to do. And if you do get audited, folks, fighting them is not a good thing. What you really want to do is you really want to make sure that you cooperate with them and uh, act with honesty and integrity because if you don't, Uh, They can make your life very, very miserable. All right. Well, let's talk about the 10 biggest financial mistakes dentists make and how to avoid them. Uh, I must uh, be uh, truthful, as I always am. I am a person of 
honesty, integrity, transparency, and uh, lately a much straighter golf shot. Um, my good friend Larry Walraven, who's a uh, one of the best labor attorneys in Orange County, Larry has been uh, working with me on my game, and um, uh, we're working on my uh, my line and my swing and everything like that. And he's really helped me. Uh, which has nothing to do with the 10 biggest mistakes. I just thought I would mention it because I like talking about golf. But this, uh, these 10 mistakes are not attributable to me. They are attributable to my good friend, Mr. Ted Schumann in Bay City, Michigan. Ted is um, one of the, he was not one of the founding members of the academy, but he was in early in the game. Uh, Ted is one of the absolute funniest uh, most wonderful people that you will ever encounter. Uh, he was a mentor to me in deciding when I was deciding to become a dental practice broker. He taught me a bunch of stuff. He was a guest on our podcast um, uh, way back when uh, in the early days. I think he was one of the first 20 that we recorded. So if you want to listen to him, uh, he's uh, at our website, which is www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources tab and go to the podcast tab and you'll find Ted there. So Ted is the one that came up with this. So let's go right into the mistake number one, waiting too long to purchase a dental practice. So again, like I told you folks, I've been a dental practice broker for about 15 years. Uh, we're kind of a boutique uh, brokerage. We don't sell uh, a lot of practices. We probably sell five to 12 a year. We're very picky on the ones we take. But the one thing that I've noticed is that there are very, uh, very many different types of dentists out there. One of the types of dentists that I've noticed are the dentists that look at my practices and have been looking at my practices for many, many years. I have some doctors that for the last four or five years, they look at every practice, but they can't pull the trigger. They get to the point where they've looked at the practice. It's in a great location. It's got the best equipment. It's got uh, the the newest digital x-ray system. Uh, it, it, it's in a great neighborhood with, with their building houses. I, I can't say enough good things about the practice. But for some reason, this doctor just can't pull the trigger. And we, we try not to even, you know, we talk to those doctors, but they're not going to buy the practice. So um, for those of you that are just starting out, you graduating school, many of you have student loan debt in the three, four, five hundred thousand dollar range. I know that. We all know that. That is reality. So you need to get a job. Many of the folks that are leaving uh, dental school are starting to work in uh, large group practices. Uh, some people call that corporate dentistry. Uh, there's there's lots of large group of practices. Uh, that are not, uh, you know, own, uh, owners of hundreds and hundreds of practices. But they go to work and they start working and they do what they do. And some of them like it and some of them make it a career. And the fact is I never talk about, you know, whether uh, corporate dentistry or group practice is good or bad. That's a, another conversation for another day. But that's where many doctors are starting today. But then after two, three, four, five years, they think, you know, I've learned enough. Uh, I'm fast enough clinically. It takes me, you know, 30, 40 minutes to cut a crown. Uh, I, I know how to diagnose. I've really learned how to talk to my, my patients and I want to buy a practice. And I think that in the terms of waiting too long to purchase a practice, 
Um, I think it goes along the same lines as when we talk to doctors about diagnosing patients. So a doctor looks in a mouth and says, this patient needs um, a whole quadrant of crowns. This is just broken up and blown up. Uh, and we can do some implants, and we can do some really, really neat stuff. And boy, I tell you, that we can make that patient look really, really good. Well, what we teach and what the consultants that I work with who teach uh, dentist verbal skills and case acceptance procedures is that uh, the patient is ready when the patient is ready. Well, it goes the same way with purchasing a practice. One day, you're going to wake up and you're going to say, you know, I'm ready. It's time. And when you do, basically, don't settle. Take your time. It might take you six months. It might take you a year. It might take you two years. Look at every single practice you possibly can. And go into a room before you start and just make a list of all the things you want. Do you want to be in a metropolitan area on a main street? Do you want to be near a school? Do you want to be in a town of 5,000 people? Uh, Where where do you want to be? What type of dentistry do you want to do? Do you want an HMO practice? Do you want a PPO practice? Do you want a fee-for-service practice? I'm going to suggest fee-for-service. That's my favorite. Um, What types of procedures do you want to do? Do you want to do, do you want to place implants? Do you want to uh, do full mouth reconstruction? I would urge all young dentists to become members of one of the large, one of any of the many wonderful large national organizations out there, uh, the Coy Center. We're going to actually have Johnny Coyce as a guest on our podcast here shortly. Um, his dad, uh, John Coyce, is uh, one of the most iconic speakers in the dental world out of Seattle. Uh, Frank Spear and his group uh, down at uh, the uh, Scottsdale Center. I've been to the Scottsdale Center. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. The Panky Institute, Las Vegas Institute, uh, I mean, all these wonderful uh, continuing education organizations. Go become a great dentist. Go learn how to talk to your patients. And then go buy your dream practice. And I'm going to tell you, when you go to look to buy your dream practice, 75% of any major decision you make in your life, whether it's to get married, buy a house, uh, buy a business, which is a dental practice, is in your gut. If you walk into the third practice you see and you say, this is it, even if you have to pay a little more than your CPA or your uh, consultant says it's worth, buy it. It'll be worth it to you. So don't wait too long. It's going to give you financial freedom to do anything that you want. You can start a retirement plan. You can take days off. You can set your own schedule. You can do what kind of work you want to do. Nobody's going to tell you that you have to use this impression material. Nobody's going to tell you that you have to use uh, the B Street Lab because that's the one we use because that's the cheapest one, whether it's the best or not. You will control your own destiny. I will tell you that when I took over ownership of the Pride Institute Financial Services Division, it was actually the Pacific Institute, at the beginning of 1989, so that's what, 11 and 19, that was 30 years ago, Um. I will tell you that I had a complete mindset change that night. Ask my wife, Lynn. We were married about five years at that time. And I was raring to go. I had all kinds of ideas of growing the business and everything. You will too. Once you go from an employee mentality 
to an owner mentality. I guarantee you, doctors, you will not regret it. If you ever want to talk to me about it, call the office. Uh, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. I've got, um, we've got a couple of young dentists that are going to be on the program. They're going to talk about their journey uh, from uh, practice ownership, uh, from being associates to being uh, practice owners. So that's waiting too long to purchase a practice. Okay. Mistake number two, building or buying an overly expensive home. Back in the 19, I don't know if it was in the 80s or the 90s. I think it was in the 80s. Uh, there was a great movie called The Money Pit, and it was with Shelley Long and Tom Hanks. If you are thinking about a home construction project, watch the movie. I'm sure it's on Netflix. You can find it. Uh, it basically is about a young married couple who buy a house, and it turns into The Money Pit. So I, when I talk about this mistake, I, I always talk about um, The Millionaire Next Door, the book The Millionaire Next Door. I had both my kids read the, read the book. I asked my clients to read the book. It's a very simple concept. The Millionaire Next Door is the man or woman who is a millionaire and they live next door, but they live in a very modest house and they drive a very modest car uh, and they do things that you don't you know, associate with being a millionaire. Well, building or buying an overly expensive home is a big mistake because folks, I will tell you this. You are always going to meet someone who has a bigger house, who has a better house, who has a larger house, uh, who has a house with better uh, marble on the countertops or or better um, better wood flooring than you have. And you want to live in a nice house because you're going to spend, you know, one third to one half of your life in there. But uh, you don't want to go crazy on a house that you can't afford because it, and a lot of times it's about ego. And, um, you know, I, I tell I tell the story about how I got my first house and I've told this before uh, was uh, my wife went on the prices right and won $10,000 and we put a down payment on a $151,000 house. And, you know, I tell doctors that you, uh, it's a great way to do it, but it's a lot, it's a lot harder than you think. Uh, but anyway, you, you don't want to spend tons and tons and tons of money on a house. Don't buy a house for, you know, $800,000 and then find out you have to put another three or $400,000 into it. Uh, the banks will loan it to you, but you have to pay it off. And I would rather see you put that money into a retirement fund. I'd rather see you put that money into college education. So rules of thumb that I've talked about when I did my golden rules talk, uh, your house payment should be about one week's take-home pay. So if you make $200,000 a year and you pay maybe 50000 in taxes is 150000 is 12500 a month. One quarter of that is about $3,000 a month. If you have a $6,000 a month house payment, your house payment is too high and it is absolutely going to destroy you financially. And the people that have big house payments also tend to have large credit card bills and large credit card balances. And that's a, uh, that, that's a whole nother conversation. So number two is buying or building an overly expensive home. Buy a nice home, make it the way you like it, make it so that you're proud of it, but it does not have to be the Taj Mahal. Mistake number three, building an overly expensive office. Oh, my goodness. I have seen it. And I will tell you that there are lots of contractors and lots of architects out there. 
who will basically read your eyes and they will get you to spend this extra money and that extra money and do all kinds of change orders. And, and, and the thing is, is I've talked to contractors. I'm not a contractor and that's not what I do for a living. But the reasons that dental offices get to be more expensive than they should be is because of finishes and uh, fish tanks and waterfalls and soffits and the fact that you're building a um, a shrine. <laughs> I, I, and I don't want you to do that. Uh, you can find very, very good uh, dental-specific architects and contractors. We had uh, Michael Unthank on the program. Mike is uh, an architect. Uh, he's a dentist and an architect, a uh, dental architect and a very, very fine uh, architect. And he knows what's good and what's not. And I will tell you, folks, you want to have a nice dental office. And if you find a good team of professionals, interior designer, architect, and dental-specific building contractor, they will build you a really nice office for a very reasonable price, uh, unless you're in San Francisco, in which case there is no reasonable price. Sorry, it doesn't go that way. But in most areas, building costs run 120 to maybe $200 a square foot. Uh, and you can build a beautiful 1,500 to 2,500 square foot dental office that will take you through your career for, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars if you, you know, negotiate with your landlord and get some tenant improvement allowances, et cetera. But do not, in my humble, everybody, as Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who I love listening to, says, in my uh, ever but humble opinion, uh, don't overspend on the building of a dental office because it is just not going to give you a return. Your patients are going to come to you, doctors, because they trust you, you care for them, and they would go to the moon with you. Not because you have extra shiny soffits on the ceiling and not because you have a a waterfall that looks like Niagara Falls. They're not coming to you because of that. They're coming to you because of you. So build a good functional dental office and don't build a ridiculously expensive one. I I had one doctor who built a 2,500 square foot office and spent $1.1 million on it. And it was just, I shook my head. I just said, this just this did not get my advice. I never would have uh, suggested they do that. And I just said, you know, why? And they said, well, this is what I want. And, um, they're paying it off. I, I guess they're they're paying it off. This is not a client of mine, just someone I knew and I talked to about. It. So anyway, mistake number four, failing to maximize retirement plan contributions early. So I'm now talking to my doctors under the age of 40. I was under 40 once. I remember those days. I think they had wagon trains and uh, uh, stagecoaches and uh, there was no internet and uh, they had Pong and Pac-Man in the movie theaters, and those were the video games that we played. So if you're under 40, let's think about this. It's easy for me to say you have student loan debt. You're probably, statistics show you're probably married. You maybe have one or two or three kids. Uh, life gets expensive. You're trying to buy your first house. Maybe you're trying to buy your first practice. Maybe you own your practice. Maybe you're building your practice, and it's like the last thing you want to think about is retirement. 
And I will tell you, doctors, again, I'm uh, uh, I'm 60 years old. Uh, many of my clients who grew up with me are in their 60s. And uh, I still love very much what I do. I enjoy helping people. It's always been a passion of mine. Uh, but what I do is not as physically demanding as what you do. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is sit down with someone like me or someone else in the ADCPA who does financial plans and start saving for retirement early. The compounding of interest, and you can't hear this enough. I know you've heard it from me. You've heard it from other people. You've read about it. Uh, your mom and dad told you, save money. Get in the habit of saving money. Even if you can only do an IRA every year, an IRA is $6,000 if you're under age 50, 7000 if you're over age 50. But if you can get into the habit of saving money and start early, if your practice is doing well, work hard on your practice, I promise you by the time you get to 50, 55, 60, if you manage your money well, if you choose a good ethical conservative repeat, conservative investment advisor. Uh, I used to say that seven to nine percent is uh, boring, but it works. Well, if you could get seven to nine percent in these markets, you're taking a lot of risk. If you could average four or five, six percent, if you're lucky uh, in your uh, average over 30 years, um, and you can put away 20, 30, 40 thousand dollars a year, uh, which in a million dollar practice is very doable. Uh, and you end up with one or two or three million dollars in a retirement fund. When you get to the age of 60, if you had, you know, say two million dollars in a retirement fund and then you sold your practice and you can pocket another half million, now you get two and a half million dollars. You take out five percent a year. That's one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year of retirement income. And you're 60 years old. You're not going to retire. Maybe you're going to work back for the person who you sold your practice to. Maybe you're going to go teach. Maybe you're going to go uh, uh, be a dental practice broker like my uh, dear friend, Dr. Phil Potter. He, worked, he and I worked together for 15 years. It was his second career. Uh, maybe maybe you're going to go do um, uh, charitable work. I don't know. But if you have a six-figure income in retirement and you've been saving you go to work because you want to, not because you have to. And it is very sad that I do have clients who are never going to retire because they just have, they never saved and they took the money that they would have put in retirement and they spent it on silly stuff, uh, cars and boats and trips and big houses and second houses. Oh boy, second, you talk about houses? I, I'm a big uh, proponent of only owning one house unless you're going to be an investor and buy rental property. Buying a vacation home, I don't think is a good investment. I never have. But start your retirement plan early. If you can do a simple IRA, push yourself to do a 401k profit sharing plan. With a 401k profit sharing plan, uh, you and your spouse, the non-working, the non-dentist, non-working spouse, uh, you can put away almost $90,000 a year with, uh, with a minimal contribution for your employees and minimal administrative costs. I mean, maybe you only put forty or 50000 a year. If you put $50,000 away for 25 years, that's $1.25 million, and that's no growth. That money is going to grow to three, three and a half million dollars. So failure to maximize retirement plan contributions early. All right, 
Mistake number five, failure to plan their estate. We had uh, Kelly Cruz, who is a wonderful, wonderful young lady and estate planning attorney on our program. And we talked about the reason that you have to plan your estate. And um, I've just gone through this with my wife. And it's not easy, folks. It's not a discussion you want to have. Nobody wants to talk about what happens when you die. Nobody wants to talk about who's going to get your money and your assets when you're going to die. But what you want to do is you want to leave a roadmap for your children and your heirs so that it does not become a nightmare and that uh, you do with your assets what you want to do. If you want to leave some money to charity, leave some money to charity. If you want to leave money to a, an aunt who's been nice to you or, or a nephew that's been nice to you, you do that. But unfortunately, more than 50% of our clients do not have estate documents. And there are so many reasons that you need to do it. Now, under the current tax law, unless you have a net worth of more than about $22.5 million, which I that would be wonderful. You can come adopt me. Uh, <laughs> that would be wonderful if you did. Uh, but most of my clients don't have that net worth. You don't have to worry about estate taxes. Uh, but what you do need to worry about is to make sure that your assets have a roadmap and a good executor who's maybe a, a spouse or a brother, a sister, a cousin, a best friend who can make sure that your wishes are carried out. Because if you don't, um, when you pass on, uh, it gets really, really messy and really, really nasty. And uh, we, we don't want that. Okay. Mistake number six. And I think before I get to mistake number six, I do want to give out, since I'm the guest and I can do this, uh, my contact information again. Uh, if you want to call me at my office in Tustin, California, and talk about any of this, the number is 714-259-0505. Uh, go on to our website, hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources link. Go to the podcast link and all of our uh, at this point of recording, over 40 podcasts are on there. There's a lot of really, really good information. You can pick and choose if you want to talk about medical billing. Medical billing. We had a medical billing specialist on. If you want to talk about uh, in, in-office um, membership plans for, uh, for patients, we had uh, uh, Boom Cloud on the program. Jordan Comstock was on the program. If you want to talk about how to go uh, uh, negotiate your office lease. We had the great folks from Car Healthcare Realty. So go onto our website, look at that. If you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, go to www.adcpa.org and find the CPA in your area. All right, let's go back to our mistakes. We're halfway through, folks. We have five more to talk about. Number six, failing to maximize tax savings. Okay, so how many times have I heard this? Hi, doctor. Uh, it's time for you to come in for your year, uh, year-end tax planning session. Well, how much is that going to cost? I have a story, uh, and obviously I'm not going to mention any names, but um, there is something we talked about. We had Kurt Goutreau from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, talking about cost segregation studies and a cost segregation study is a, a way to take the uh, build out of your dental office uh, or the purchase of a, of a building for your dental office and accelerate the deductions for depreciation from 39 years down to five and seven and 
15 years. And um, I had a doctor who I who had just spent $2 million building out a dental office, and he was a client. And I will never forget this. And I called up. I said, so, doctor, I can save you $150,000 in taxes this year. We need to do this cost segregation study. And the first thing he said to me is, well, how much is it going to cost in your fees? And I wanted to reach through the phone and rip his larynx out. I really did. How much is it going to cost? Why does it matter? It's not going to cost $150,000. I wish, but it doesn't. It's very inexpensive to do these types of studies. So I'm going to encourage all of you. We're recording this podcast in early October, so we're getting close to year end. If you don't have a CPA, get one. Uh, If you have a CPA, call their office, make an appointment to go over where you're at. You might spend one or two hours of a CPA's time, and they might find something for you uh, that's going to save you a ton of money. Here's an example. So we have a wonderful, wonderful dentist that we work with in Orange County. Uh, Great guy. I love the guy. And he's got this great practice. He's busting at the seams. And he says to me, I might have, again, might have told this story. He says to me, Art, Art. So I said, what's going on? He says, I'm getting married. I said, that's great. That's great. He's had a long time. Girlfriend, she's getting married. I said, when are you getting married? He says, January 9th. And I said, great. And I look up on his taxes and I see what's going on. I said, no, you're not getting married January 9th. You're getting married December 28th. He says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm getting married January 9th. I said, no, 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 no. You're going to go find a justice of the peace. I will personally get anointed as someone who could marry you if that's necessary. Because were he to get married on December the 28th, here's what happens. We have this new section 199A deduction. Well, if you're single and your taxable income is over 157500 this was for 2018, you don't get the deduction. If you're married, your marital status, status is determined on the last day of the tax year. And that marital status, uh, if it's married, you get you know, three hundred fifteen thousand uh, dollars is um, was the limit. It goes up with inflation. So by him getting married, his taxable income was right around three hundred thousand. So we got him a fifty plus thousand dollars section one ninety nine eight deduction. In addition, the the between the my dentist and his spouse to be, they had four children. Well, at the moment, he had one. When they got married, he would have four. And if your adjusted gross income is under $400,000, you get a $2,000 child tax credit for um, each child. So that was $8,000. We calculated that we saved this doctor about $17,000 in federal income tax just by making a recommendation that they get married 10 days before they did. And every dime was there on the tax return and he thanked us. So sit down with your CPA. Call a member of the Academy of Dental CPAs. They are, we're all gearing up. As soon as the October 15th tax deadline gets done, we give a list of our clients to our uh, wonderful administrative assistants that we all have. And they're calling clients and they're scheduling the meetings and we're doing the workups and we're sitting down for one or two or three hours or whatever it takes. And my job is to increase the federal deficit as much and as fast as I can. And how do I do that? By saving you taxes. You are not, ladies and gentlemen, you are not required 
to pay one dime more than the minimum required amount of tax by law. And that is the God's honest truth. We want to make sure that we save you as much in taxes as we possibly can. Now, that leads into number seven, mistake number seven, overemphasis on tax savings. I have clients who all they care about is they want to pay no tax. They want to pay the minimum amount of tax. They just, they hate the government. They they want to hold the money to the last minute, which is fine. But overemphasis on tax savings. And so what happens is there are companies out there, ladies and gentlemen, of course, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are companies out there that are recommending financial and investment strategies to dentists that are not only bordering on illegal, but they are not good financial investments. Uh, they are not uh, going to, to do well by you. They are very risky. And, um, you know, I will tell you a story, and this is all in, in the public. Um, you know, many years ago, there was a, a company out there called Zalon, and Zalon sold uh, insurance products. And the bottom line with Zalon was that they um, they were selling products that we believed were not uh, compliant with IRS rules. And down the road, the IRS agreed and froze $600 million of their assets that were in a Jamaican or Bahaman trust or whatever it was. And the people that invested with them had to pay tax and interest and penalties. And so the bottom line is nobody, I repeat, nobody likes to pay income taxes. My big joke is if you, uh, if you want to get great write-offs, call me around the 13th or 14th of April. By then, I will have done my extension. And uh, I'm so mad at the government, I'll write off anything for anybody. No, no, no. If anybody from the IRS is listening, please, please, that's not true. I'm a very ethical CPA. Uh, I've never had a ding on my license in 35 plus years. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is um, I, you know, it, it's like anything else. Uh, there's black, there's white, and there's gray. Uh, white we do all day long. Black we never do, meaning totally illegal. And gray we talk about. And it's my job as a financial advisor and a tax advisor to tell you what the risks are and, and to tell you whether I think that if you take a position on a tax return, it's going to uh, pass muster with the IRS. And uh, we take the IRS, as I was saying earlier, very, very seriously. But do not overemphasize tax savings. Uh, my, my dear, dear friend, um, client, investment advisor, um, uh, once gave me a wonderful saying, which is never let the tax tail wag the investment dog. And I'll leave you with that on number seven, because that is absolutely something that you don't want to do. You don't want overemphasis on tax savings. Pay your taxes. Um, you know, are we happy with what happens with our tax money in Washington? Maybe, maybe not. But the fact of the matter is this is the greatest country to live in in the world, bar none. I can't tell you how many people, they go on vacation to all these exotic different places and they come back and a lot of them say to me, you know, Art, I had a great time, but I'm so glad I live in the United States of America. This is the greatest country on earth and we have a tax system and that's how we pay for stuff. 
And uh, like I say, nobody likes paying taxes, uh, but make sure that you don't go out and make bad investments uh, in, in things that are going to get you in trouble. And again, talk to your financial advisor before you make these moves. Mistake number eight, lack of proper amount or type of life and disability insurance. I think I talked about this in my golden rules, but I can't overemphasize it. Life insurance, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it used to be for two things. It used to be for estate costs, cost of if you die and you have to pay estate taxes. But as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about uh, mistake uh, numbers, number five, I think it was, which is the uh, failure to plan your estate, unless you have an estate that's worth more than $22, $23 million between you and your spouse, uh, you don't really have to worry about paying estate taxes. So the reason that you have a the reason that you have life insurance is 100% as income replacement. So for example, if you have a spouse who is a dentist and another spouse who is at home, maybe the business manager, uh, you know, who knows what what your situation is. Uh, the 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 doctor should have the larger amount of insurance. You need enough life insurance in my opinion to pay off your house, to put away enough money to put your children through college, and to have a pile of money. It doesn't have to be a pile. It can be in an account, an amount that you have invested that will allow your surviving spouse who maybe is not working to be able to live a good life and raise the children in a house that's free and clear and the education is paid for. And that number is usually 3 to $4 million of life insurance. Do not avoid buying life insurance. Don't buy $500,000. I'm also not a big fan of um, cash value life insurance, uh, you know, universal, whole, universal, variable life uh, with the Kung Fu grip uh, because I don't think that in life insurance is a good investment. There are lots of people probably listening to me that may disagree. Well, you know, then – you can start your own podcast and you can say, Art Wiederman doesn't know what he's talking about. You're welcome to do that. But um, I, I believe that you should have life insurance. I personally, when I was 40 years old, um, I mean, I had some life insurance, but I bought a million dollars of term insurance uh, fixed for 20 years. It cost me $2,150 a year. This year was the 20th year with the idea that after 20 years, hopefully I built up enough assets that I didn't need life insurance to take care of my spouse. And uh, being that I uh, get obsessive compulsive about saving money because I see what happens in my practice, um, we canceled the life insurance plus the fact that the annual premium went from $2,150 a year to about $23,000 a year because it's based on age. So we don't have that anymore. I like 20, 30-year term if you can get it. And it gives you the income replacement. And then if you have enough assets when you are ready to retire or at retirement age, then maybe you don't need life insurance. Disability insurance, folks, buy as much as you can. Uh, you can probably get 50 to 70% of your annual income. But if you don't have disability insurance, you will be sorry. Unfortunately, somewhere between three and four out of 10 of the dentists who have to sell their practices before they are ready to retire are not selling because they are tired of dentistry. Most of my clients love what they do. They are selling because of some physical ailment or 
God forbid, cancer or illness or what have you. Uh, and so you want to make sure you have this disability insurance. You want to give my friend Randy Curry, look up the, the podcast we did with Randy. We did that early on. Randy is a an attorney who specializes in working with dentists uh, and fighting insurance companies to get the best benefits that they possibly can for their clients. Uh, insurance companies have two objectives, collect as much premium money as they can and pay out as little in benefits as they can. That's how they make maximum profits. So basically, you want to make sure you have enough life and enough disability insurance. Here's number nine, and this is a big one. This is this is really, really important, folks. Failure to understand their investments. So here's what happens. I have clients who hire an investment advisor, and how do they find them? Well, maybe they heard them on the radio. Maybe they saw them at a an you know a business fair. Maybe they heard them at a dental society lecture. Uh, maybe they got a call from a friend, or maybe they asked a friend, "Well, who do you use?" Well, I use my uh, aunt's cousin's nephew's uncle, third removed, uh, and and he how's he done? Well, I guess he's okay. I don't know. So what I want to tell you is that nobody is going to manage and watch your money as well as you're going to be watching your own money. And I will tell you, I probably get five to 10 a year clients who will mail me, uh, they send me their tax information in February or March, and it's a whole bunch of unopened envelopes. Now I have to open all the envelopes and see which one of these envelopes are 1099s and 1098s and W-2s and things like that. But with these clients, every year they will send me 12 statements of their investment account. They'll send me 12 statements of their IRA. They'll send me 12 statements of their retirement account. And why do they do that? Because, well, Art's got to obviously need it for the taxes. Well, no, I don't. But they've never opened the envelope. And I ask them, when is the last time you talked to the investment advisor? Well, I guess the market's going up. It must be okay. No, absolutely not. So my recommendation to you folks is that not only do you need to start reading, uh, you know, you, you, you can you can watch some of the stuff on TV. Some of the stuff on TV is a little bit uh, entertainment. Um, but, uh, you know, read Morningstar, read Bloomberg, uh, read different websites. Uh, there are all kinds of wonderful resources that you can read as to what's going on in the economy. Some of the analysis of the national CPA firms like Deloitte and PwC and Ernst & Young, those those uh, analyses are, are wonderful. Uh, go to study clubs where investment people are talking about the economy. Um, there's all kinds of things going on in our economy right now that are affecting the stock market. They're affecting the real estate markets, everything that's going on overseas. Uh, I mean, you know, we see President, and again, like I tell you, every time I mention President Trump's name, I will not. I refuse to get into any discussion, good, bad, or otherwise, uh, about our current president. But every time President Trump tweets that uh, he's going to do something with Chinese tariffs, if he says we're going to negotiate with the Chinese, what happens? The markets go up. If he says, one, one time he said, I'm going to insist that all American businesses pull out of China. 
Well, what happened that day? The market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I think went down seven or 800 points and it went fast. So you need to understand how your money is invested. Uh, the saddest story I ever have heard was a client. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. Was not a client. Actually was not a client of my practice. And this doctor was calling me and was actually pushing me to invest with his investment advisor. And of course I did not. And the investment advisor was working on uh, strategies on maximizing returns on futures and options, two of the most risky investments that you can make in this life. And he got mad at me. He actually said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. This guy is brilliant. He's going to, he'll be able to retire in a year. And I said, okay, well, I wish you luck. Didn't hear from him. And he called me about nine months later. He had a question. And I said, how's it going? And he started to cry. I'm not making this up. I said, "What? what's wrong? And he told me that in three days, he lost 75% of his retirement account with this investment advisor because my my friend did not understand what he was investing in and he didn't know what it was and he trusted someone, you know, people trusted Bernie, Bernie Madoff and we know what happened with that. Millions and millions of dollars. I know people who invested with him who lost money. It's very, very sad. So what you must do is you must, um, you must meet with your investment advisor. I believe quarterly is good. Go over what's going on in the markets. What is their philosophy? Why are we 60% in large cap stocks and 40% in uh, one-year treasuries? Why are we that way? Uh, I've seen some crazy investment portfolios. I am a registered investment advisor, but I do not give investment advice. That is not what I do. But we have very, very good people, and many of the members of the Academy of Dental CPAs uh, do investment advisory work. Um, and it's, 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 it's really, really good because those are the people that care the most about your investment. So you must meet with your investment advisors. You have to ask questions why Why did this go down when the market went up? See, an investment advisor is great when the market goes up 30%. Anybody's great when it goes up 30%. But if the market goes down by 40%, then what happens? You know, what did they do? Our investment advisor was a very, very conservative protocol. And when the investments went, when in 2008, when the markets went down by 40, 41%, our portfolio was down about 9%. I had clients who I'd recommended over to them thanking me profusely for this. So you must, you must, you must, you must meet with your investment advisor. You must understand why they are having you invest in what it is. You must ask questions. Go get a second opinion. If someone said you have fourth stage prostate cancer, you would probably get a second opinion. If you go to an investment advisor and they put you in stuff that doesn't make sense to you, go get a second opinion. It's something that you need to do. So number nine is failure to understand your investments. And my favorite of all times, number 10, getting a divorce. That's a good way to wind this one up. Um, I am very fortunate that in my practice, 
We have, I can probably count on two hands over the years, the number of dentists that have gotten a divorce. I have, unfortunately, as the dentist's trusted advisor, I get in the middle of all this. I end up in court. I end up testifying. I end up having to produce records for, you know, the the husband's attorney, the wife's attorney. Uh, divorce is a very, very painful thing to go through. I am very, very fortunate. I have the best wife on the planet. May of 2020, we will have been married 35 years. And uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to go through a marital disillusion. Uh, So I will encourage you, uh, and this is as much psychology as you're probably going to get from me. If you're If you have a significant other um, and you absolutely are in madly in love with them and you believe that you're going to spend the rest of your life with them, communicate with them. Talk to them about making sure that you're on the same page with how you want to live your life, how you want to, you know, what what kind of uh, how you want to raise your kids, how you want to spend money. The number one reason for divorce in this country is um, money problems. And then get married. And, you know, it's a lot of work, folks. Uh, There are three things in this life that don't come with a how-to book. Spouses, children, and businesses. And most all of you listening, as was me until two years ago when I merged my CPA firm, I had all three for over 30 years. And it's a lot of work. But getting a divorce is a big mistake if you can at all avoid it. Work it out. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a problem. What can I tell you? So those are my 10 biggest mistakes dentists make and how to avoid them. I hope I've given you some really good insight and food for thought information. And the last thing I want to tell you folks is pay attention to your finances, do a financial plan, figure out When are you going to retire? How much are you going to have to retire on? How much do you need to save? Start early. How much do you need to put away for your kid's college? I mean, how much of a heartbreak would it be to look at your beautiful son or your beautiful daughter who's been a straight-A student, honor society, as my late dad used to say, magna magna cum laude, not soft. A dumb joke, but that's what he used to say. And to say to them, honey, I, I can't afford this. I can't afford to send you here. You're going to have to go out and get student loans or, or whatever. You need to plan all this stuff. Uh, we all want to have fun. We all want to do fun things. We all want to have nice things. We want to drive nice cars. We want to live in nice houses. We want to take nice trips. But it's kind of a little, you know, the little devil and the angel on each shoulder. One of them is telling you, go out and spend money and don't worry about it. And you'll deal with it later. And the other one is saying, no, 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 we need to plan and we need to be ready and we need to make sure that we've got enough money for retirement. And I will I will tell you that you will be much happier in your practice and much happier in your marriage and much happier in your life if you have your finances worked out and you don't make some of these mistakes that unfortunately not only dentists but other people make. And, and I have spent my career and I will go to my grave, ladies and gentlemen, trying to convince people that they need to plan their finances out. And I hope that this hour of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman um, and his guest, Art Wiederman, 
has uh, maybe given you the little bit of a kick that you need to say, I'm going to call a financial planner Monday morning or Tuesday morning, and I'm going to make sure that that we start getting our house in order. And yeah, we got to get that will and trust done. And I know, but now we're going to do it. If I have done that for at least one of you, then I feel like I've done a great service because I love the dental profession. We at the Academy of Dental CPAs love the dental profession. We believe in it. They're some of the most wonderful, kind, caring people on the planet. And we want to see you. You work so hard in what you do. Nobody knows how hard you work except people in the profession. And we want to see you make it and make it big and have a great life. And then to be able to retire because you want to, not because you have to. So that is it for me, ladies and gentlemen. One more time, I will tell you, if you want to get a hold of me, I'm at 714-259-0505. Please feel free to give me a call about anything. Uh, If you disagree with me, let's talk about it. We can always agree to disagree. Uh, I'm not always right. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, Look us up on our website, www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources section. Go to the podcast tab, and you can see all the information about our guests and our podcasts. You can download them all. That's the great thing about podcasts is they're all on demand. And if you are looking for a dental-specific CPA and you don't have one, please take this opportunity to look on our map at www.adcpa.org and find the the CPA in your area. Just give him a call. Go meet with him for an hour. I mean, the stuff you hear from these men and women, you will not hear from the Garden Variety CPA. You absolutely will not. So anyway... So that is it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope this has been helpful for you. That's it for this edition of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, CPA. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 